I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The recent events in Gaza have called me to question myself again. Your life should not be a selfish life. The Quranic message is about the gravity of human choice. Is there an implicit criticism of the way we have been living our lives? We have individualized a message which is really a communal message. How important is the caliphate when describing a structured ummah? We are bigger than that. We have a message. We have a mission. We are an outpost for the global ummah. Ramadan is often associated with zakah, the payment Muslims make to the poor annually to cleanse our earnings and wealth. But is zakah a simple act of charity or does it have a wider interconnection with the ummah? Ramadan has also been associated in the prophetic seerah with the concept of jihad. But in a world of trauma, we in the West have shied away from such revolutionary ideas in exchange for a life without consequence. My guest this week, Dr. Sahel Hanif, argues that we need to reconnect not just with our relationship with our ummah, but also to reorient our lives to live like the Murabitun of the past, those who saw themselves as within a wider objective of thinking about the deen and the ummah and their part within this rubric. In this endeavour to change our mentality, we have to reconfigure how we view some of the fundamental ideas like zakat, like ummah and like jihad. Are we in the West manning an outpost of this ummah and has Gaza taught us the wider lessons about reorienting our mentalities? Dr. Sohel Hanif is the National Zakat Foundation's Chief Executive. Prior to this, he held the position of lecturer at Cambridge Muslim College. He also was the Head of Sciences at Al-Qasid Arabic Institute in Amman. He has expertise in Islamic law, having studied extensively with traditional scholars, but also holds a PhD from Oxford University. Dr. Sahar Hanif, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome to The Thinking Muslim. Wa alaikum assalam. It's a great pleasure to be here with you. Well, it's great to have you back on the show. Now, I think uh, this is a really interesting subject. I've been thinking a lot about the prior discussion we had about reorienting our mentality. Now, 
Let's probably start the subject with the most uh, controversial of the concepts, that of jihad. It's a word that uh, evokes a lot of apprehension here in the West and within our communities. Uh, we're still living in a post 9-11 cautious world. Why do you insist as an Islamic scholar, why do you insist on using the term jihad in your public discourse? Yeah, so I'd say at the core of this discussion we're going to have today is I'd say the duty to reclaim and own and define and really journey within our own sacred vocabulary. Uh, we're approaching the month of the Holy Quran and what I'd like to be expressing with you all is that the sacred vocabulary of our religion is something we should defend, we should defend with honor and we should reflect deeply upon. And jihad, uh, some of our scholars have said were there a sixth pillar to the faith, it would be jihad. That's a huge statement to make. So how can we shy away with, from something that civilizationally was seen as so central? Mm -hmm. Or for example, our prophet, may God bless him and give him peace, he said, the pillar of our faith is prayer and the pinnacle is jihad. And so there's too many statements for us to sort of say, well, I'm not going to engage with that word. I'm scared of that word. Mm -hmm. And uh, the moment isn't lost upon us right now. Jihad, or you can say the anti-jihad rhetoric, is drumming up uh, because our moment is one of, well, there is a genocide happening right now to believers who are trapped in the Holy Land. Uh, there are many, many people deeply frustrated with structures that they thought were standing up for decency and equality and justice, and they're not seeing that. And there's a rhetoric, political and media, that senses where this frustration is going, and they're drumming up a lot of anti-jihad rhetoric right now. Yeah. Uh, Prime Minister's questions, Rishi Sunak recently said, if someone shouts jihad, I ban them. Uh, Donald Trump recently, he said, if people shout jihad, I'm banning them from America. Uh, and so in this context, we have a choice. We either let others define our sacred vocabulary and we lose the moment, or we claim it, we own it, we study it, and we reflect deeply on what is our role in a time like this. Uh, this is a time of no doubt a sort of, I'd say, civilizational awakening. People are thinking really hard, what is my role? So then, if I can move on to that, what is jihad? Yes. In a very basic building up uh, of what I actually am referring to. Mm. So, jihad in classical Arabic, juhud, means struggle. Uh, jihad, the form, the Arabic form, jihad, mujahada, means struggling against some barrier or some opposing force. Like, there's some, it's a difficult struggle. There's something trying to push you back and you're struggling against it. That's the Arabic meaning of the word uh, jihad. And in very short, what is jihad as described in the text of the Holy of the same of the Prophet, first of all, it's to engage in struggle uh, for the sake of God. That's at the heart of it. Mm. And if you look at how the Quran uses this word, it uses this word long before Muslims were ever given permission to engage in any military activity at all. Mm. For the majority of the Prophet's mission, وسلم, it was a, uh, uh, they were, Muslims were forbidden to engage in any form of uh, physical violence mm. or, or defense even. This was in Mecca. In, in, um, in, in um, Mecca. But yet, the word jihad was revealed and used in the Quran of Mecca. Right. 
Right. So for example, in Surah Fulqana, Prophet is told Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, So it's the only phrase, the mighty jihad only comes in the Quran in Mecca, uh, where there's no fighting. It's saying, oppose the idolaters with the Quran and wage a mighty jihad with this Quran. And so the idea was, again, exerting extreme struggle where people are name calling, attacking, stone throwing, cutting off family relations, boycotting, every form of imposing misery, hardship, imprisonment, all sorts of difficulty. And yet the believers were told, stand strong, be firm. God is with you, proclaim the truth. That proclamation in an environment of fear was called jihad. Uh, Surah Al-Ankabut is a Meccan surah. Uh, it speaks about jihad right at the beginning and right at the end. It is a surah just before the very difficult migration out of uh, Mecca, uh, where uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, مَنْ جَاهَدَ فَإِنَّمَا يُجَاهِدُ لِنَفْسِهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَغَنِيٌّ حَمِيدٌ Whoever does jihad, is doing it for, him, for his own advantage, Allah is free of need and praiseworthy. Meaning this struggle, God doesn't need it. God's mission will, will be complete. But your honor is to struggle for his sake and you will be the beneficiary of struggle in a time of great difficulty by standing up for truth. At the end of that surah, uh, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, uh, very last verse, those who do jihad for our sake, we'll guide them to our pathways. That's not a reference to where you are on the battlefield. It's a reference to a, di a directedness in life. That I am struggling for the sake of serving God. And Allah is saying, whoever enters that struggle, he'll guide their heart. He'll show them the way. He'll show them how they can make their struggle meaningful. Then we have the surah revealed in Medina, which is the first surah where Muslims were given permission to defend themselves militarily against these people who had been wronging them and expelling them and so on. Uh, the, but the very last verse of that surah, Surah Hajj, is a very interesting take on jihad. Very last verse. It says, وَجَاهِدُوا فِي اللَّهِ حَقَّ جِهَادِهِ هُوَ اجْتَبَاكُمْ وَمَا جَعَلَ عَلَيْكُمْ فِي الدِّينِ مِنْ حَرَجٍ مِلَّةَ أَبِيكُمْ إِبْرَاهِيمٍ So the verse saying, do jihad, for the sake of Allah, as he deserves, he chose you. He didn't make this religion hard for you. And this is the way of Abraham. And so the way of Abraham is jihad for the sake of Allah as Allah deserves. And Abraham's story is not a story of military conquest. It's a story of lifelong struggle to establish the worship of the one true God. Mm. And that's why Allah made him a leader of people. There's no one figure that the people on the planet today look up to as a father of truth as much as they look up to Abraham, Christians, Jews and Muslims. So we're told it's his way you have to uphold and that's by doing jihad, the way that God deserves. And then our Prophet wasallam, he constantly reminded, and even, sorry, this verse, the commentators say it's about there's the defense of the external enemy and there's every other form of opposition to what is against truth. Then our Prophet ﷺ reminded people for uh, once a uh, very well-known hadith where a person sought permission, let me go and join you on a military campaign. And the Prophet said, وسلم, are your parents still alive? And the person said, yes. And then the Prophet said, وسلم, your jihad is with your parents. He didn't say you can't do jihad. Mm. He said, you have a jihad. And I'll tell you what your jihad is. 
It's knowing what you can do to serve the cause of God, which we'll have to define further, in where God has placed you, which in this in his case was a very difficult struggle of caring for elderly parents, which is not always uh, a very easy thing. Yeah. Our Prophet said, Afdal al-jihad, kalimatu adlin li sultanin ja'ir. He said the kalimatu adlin inda sultanin ja'ir. He said the most virtuous form of jihad is to speak a word of justice in the presence of a tyrannical ruler. No swords, no horses, no battlefields. And he said that's the highest kind of jihad because it's scary. And you know you might lose your life, your freedom, your wealth. The rest of your life, your family might be hounded. But you think in that moment, you can speak for justice. And the Prophet said, don't shy away. You're right at the top uh, in this moment. And so what you're seeing then is a wider narrative. And it's a wider narrative which we have to reclaim and understand because uh, if we don't, uh, we're going to lose out on clarity, on purpose and on our uh, opportunity. So what's at the core of this activity? So I'm saying there's a wider purpose. I'm saying you express it with your family and with truth and uh, with defense. I'm saying it exists before there was any military permission uh, permitted. What's at the core of it? I said for the sake of God, the way our scholars of fiqh talk about the purpose of jihad, they say it's i'azazuddin, which basically means giving triumph to this deen. Deen we translate as religion. So you can think of the cause of God, you can think of the collective of believers. So any human being who engages in any activity with any means available of the truth, of speaking, of writing, of any activity, for the purpose of giving honor, dignity, safety, protection, clarity to this collective of believers is someone engaging in jihad. And the last thing I'll say, and I'll pass it back to you, is that our fiqh scholars, fiqh being discipline of uh, Islamic law, they are really explicit. When uh, We have a chapter on jihad, they talk about rules of warfare and and peace and so on, they're really explicit that jihad could be expressed, you know, on the, on the state and political level, jihad is equally expressed by war as, is, as it is expressed by peace. And so they talk about treaties and peace treaties, they call it jihad ma'nan. It's a jihad in meaning if the uh, government that engages in peace treaty is doing it for the sake of the well-being and the thriving and the honor and the dignity of the realm that they represent. So the conclusion is then our tradition is really explicit, Quran and Sunnah and the Islamic law tradition, that jihad has a wider remit and it's the highest honor a believer could engage in is entering into the wider remit, which is all activity done by using whatever means a person has in whatever circumstance a person is in to ask themselves honestly, what can I do with what I've been given to bring triumph, honor, safety, protection to this community and collective who follow God and his messenger. That's a fascinating uh, explanation of, of the term jihad. Now, I think you go uh, one step further in, in, in the discussions I've had with you where you express the need for Muslims, especially Muslims in the West, to have a mentality that reflects uh, the seriousness, I suppose, of 
uh, placing the Ummah and the Deen at the, at the top of our concerns. Can you speak to that idea of, of the mentality of struggle? Yeah, so there's, there's a few parts to this. But uh, that's why sometimes I talk about a jihad doctrine, meaning it's a way you want to program yourself to think about, it's about purposefulness in life. I that's, can see the comments now in, in my comment section already, a jihad doctrine. <laughs> well, it's about purposefulness. If people leave the comments, just listen to the discussion as well, is my only request. <laughs> because what, uh, what I think is required is we have to really inject people with purposefulness. Your life should not be a selfish life. That's why I said when you engage with the sacred vocabulary, you engage with all of its dimensions. And so we have a rich sacred tradition of spirituality, Sufism, mysticism, which places right at the core an, an ideal they call jihad and nafs, which is doing jihad against your ego. Mm. Uh, and it's all intertwined because... Uh, uh, again, our, our Prophet said, وسلم, the first person to go to hell, there's a hadith about the first people to go to hell, and it describes a person who died in battle with the Muslims for the sake of God. Mm -hmm. But on judgment day, God says, why did he do all of this? And he said, I did it for your sake. And God says, no, no, you're lying. You did it because you wanted to be called a hero and you were called a hero. So that's it. It's done and dusted. And so we're not in, ex it's not about external anger. It's not about external expression. Something has to start within, and that's why it's a full doctrine of purpose, which is you don't ally with your own self. You have to wean yourself off of selfishness. And how do you do that? You live for something higher. That's why it's a doctrine of purposefulness. What is higher? Higher is God and his messenger. So that's why, as, as the Quran says, an nabiyu the Prophet, God bless him and give him peace, is closer, more worthy, more primary, you can say, to the believers than their own selves. That's where, the, if you like, this mentality of faith, this purposeful uh, directedness starts. It's by putting the Prophet and God and his Prophet, وسلم, number one, and you become number two. That struggle straight away. Uh, that's why the, the, the jihad starts with your personal practice and your prayer and your fasting and your zakat. That's teaching you that God is more important than your work and God is more important than your wealth and God is more important than your food. That's already teaching. That's, that's the essence of, if you like, this, this doctrine, this way of life. I'm not the most important and my status is not the most, most important. But then it doesn't stop within because that's still selfishness. Yeah. If it's your realization and your closeness to God and your feeling high and you're hitting the heights. That, that's selfish because it wasn't about you to begin with. The ideal of Islam is about losing yourself in the sea of those who rotate, if you like, around the, uh, around, again, the God and his messenger. So think of the tawaf, losing yourself in the sea. Unless you're in the sea and you're serving the sea, you're self-centered. Uh, and that's why the pinnacle of faith is you've established prayer You've learned your duty. You have to think about the world. You have to care about the world outside of yourself. That's why there's this ideal that keeps coming in the Holy Quran of commanding the true good and forbidding the evil. And what is that? It's a care for society. It's feeling responsible for the world outside and doing something about that. What the something is, is something we have to learn. We have to study. And you all have, like I keep saying, your own abilities to write, to read, to sing, 
to speak, to lobby, to do something. But you have to do that. And that's a life worth living. Anything else is selfishness, cowardice. And it's not just that. It's actually being responsible for the evil in the world. Because one theme that goes again and again in the Holy Quran, uh, the people of Pharaoh, all types of people, they find themselves in hell. Mm. And then they say to God, but these were our leaders. At least punish them twice, if not blame only them. And then the leaders go back to them and say, well, you chose. And so the heart of religion and the heart of what you might call a jihad message, meaning a purposeful message, is human choice. That's what this really, the Quranic message is about the gravity of human choice. We are born into a collective, but you have to, when you come of age, choose the people you want to ally yourselves with and align yourselves with. If you don't choose, if you don't have any concern with the world outside of you, if you don't take a stance against injustice in the world outside of you, then the Quranic narrative is you're complicit. You might think you're just going through the wheel of ordinary life, but you've accepted and you've gone along and you've supported and you will be responsible. You can't change everything in the world. That's why the, the Prophet said, وسلم, at least you change with your heart yeah. and maybe you change with your tongue. But this doctrine is a doctrine of responsibility. It's choice. It's choosing God and his messenger. It's not succumbing to ego. And then it's finding the courage not to be cowardly. And it's caring about the world. And it's doing what you can with what you've been given. That's why I call it, it's almost like a doctrine. It's a way. It's a purposefulness. And I think people need that now because it's a time of confusion. Uh, scholars aren't speaking, I think, sufficiently about this balance of justice and mercy, which is an important balance. And so it's just about telling people there is such a thing as a purposeful life. You can live it and you don't have to wait for any romantic ideal. You can live it right where you are. And it might just be looking after your parents, but you can live it. Let's live it together. Mm. That's the message that I think is quite timely. So your argument is we need to live a life of consequence, a consequential life rather than a, a benign life. And that, that's what Islam demands. Um, you're someone who interacts uh, widely with the Muslim community here in Britain. You know, you give Islamic lectures and, you know, in many ways, uh, people refer to you uh, in, in, you know, in your uh, explanations of Islam. Are you drawing on a criticism, a critique of the Western Muslim lifestyle here? Is there a implicit criticism of the way we have been living our lives? That's a tricky question. I've not arrived at what I'm saying through criticism, other than criticism of myself, actually. Mm. Uh, what's been happening is, over the last, whatever, 15, 20 years, I've been thinking just a lot about what the sacred law is about. I've been teaching Islamic sacred law for a long time. And there there's just a growing and deepening realization that we have individualized a message which is really a communal message. And this individualization of faith is not being fully true and honest to the trust that we have received, which is the trust of uh, really being true to what the Messenger of God has passed on to us, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And so even as we can discuss, prayer is communal and zakat is communal, even fasting is communal. There's a communal message. And I've been challenging myself in, and, uh, in different stages, if you like, where I've realized I've fallen really short in all of this. So even joining uh, NZF, and, you know, which is coming out of the classroom, 
National just, Zakat yeah, National Foundation. Zakat Foundations yeah. coming out of the classroom just to, because I think the fiqh tradition is calling us to really think about building community. And I feel, well, I want to have a share in that. If I'm talking about it, I should have a share in that. Yeah. And then I think like many people in the world today, the recent events in Gaza have called me to question myself again. Because yeah. I've been thinking so much in the abstract and thinking so much about building local community. You have to think about well, what's the wider narrative and what's the wider duty. Uh, and so this narrative of jihad is almost the next step of which I'm trying to understand myself what I'm meant to be doing here. And so maybe next year we'll come up with another buzzword to talk about. So it's not for me to criticize, but it's that I'm part of a narrative. I'm part of our society. And I think we all need to take the next step. And I think in our sacred tradition, having purposefulness tied to ummah, which we can discuss, yeah. I think the word jihad is deep, it's meaningful, and people are trying to define it for us. And I don't think they have that right. Mm. Whether it's particular people amongst our community or whether it's people in another community. We have a collective duty to celebrate our teaching and a right to defend that. And, and the more we explore that, we'll find our purpose. And so that's what I'll say. It's critique of myself in all honesty and trying to find a, a better way to understand my role and duty and place in the world, yeah. if I could say it that way. So I want to come back to jihad in a second, but you've raised the issue of ummah, community. Um, explain ummah to me and its manifestations from the, from the Hukum Shari. Yeah, so ummah is another big sort of ideal and understanding I've been trying to understand deeper. Mm -hmm. uh, the word ummah in Arabic is a collective, large group. It comes together around a purpose. Because amam, ammahu in Arabic are all words that mean purpose and direction. So everything is about purposefulness and ummah is about purposefulness. A group that have come together around a purpose or a cause. And at the heart of it, you can say is an imam. Because uh, imam also comes from the same word, which means leader. And what we learn as uh, ummahs of faith is that the only imams or leaders around whom a faith community is meant to know itself and identify itself is the prophet of that ummah. So we have this interesting understanding, we can talk about leadership as well, that there are no leaders, there are only followers of prophets. Uh, and that's an important idea, as maybe we can also dive into. Lots of interconnected ideas, but I'll, I'll let you lead the uh, conversation. So the idea is that intrinsic to the Islamic teaching is the fact that faith is meant to be experienced and enjoyed in community. And that's that why our calendar of the Islamic community does not start with the revelation of the Holy Qur'an. It does not start with the night journey of our Prophet ﷺ, whose period we are currently in. Yeah. It starts with the migration. When the Prophet ﷺ leaves his homeland of Mecca, to establish a community of the faithful, a structured community of the faithful. That's the beginning of our calendar. And so uh, the whole teachings of the sacred law is about faith in community. Our Prophet said, وسلم, the hand of God is with the group. The Prophet said, وسلم, when a person is by themselves, the devil is with them. When they're two people, the devil is further away. 
Everything in his teachings about coming together, come together, come together, honoring all ties of neighbors and of family. But the greatest tie that he want, that he established, which really revolutionized Arabia, because it was a deeper tie than tribalism. And it was a tie you could join by choice, and it's the tie of faith. And uh, everything he established in Medina وسلم, was about this, including the five pillars. The five pillars are the foundations of Ummah. Mm. That we, anyone who utters the two testimonies of faith is a part of this sacred connectivity. Uh, the prayer, which is a group institution in the mosque, which is, uh, I'd say, Islam's greatest institution. The zakat, an important institution to nurture the ties of Ummah. Uh, fasting, where we come together and break fast and communally uh, encourage each other in our spiritual practice. Hajj, where we travel and worship together. So all I'll say in short is, Ummah is actually the bearer of the prophetic trust. He didn't just leave behind teachings. He left behind a community in which he was invested, which he taught, which he taught them how to be structured because there's a clash in, in the sacred law or, or in the message because there's this urging of coming together and whenever you come together, there's conflict. You know, there's family, whatever you want, whatever unit you have, there's a conflict when people come together and you want to run apart again. That's why the sacred law is institutions of how to regulate conflict, whether it's qada, whether it's politics, whether it's the rules of the prayer, because you have to come together and he's given them institutions on how to regulate conflict. This ummah and this structure, that's what bears his message. And that's why in every time our duty, if you want to keep your message short, because when you say serve the cause of God, it's quite abstract. Yeah. If you say make the word of God the highest, it's very abstract. So I personally find it very meaningful to say serve the ummah. Well, any act you can do that gives the ummah clarity to guide them, gives them safety, gives them security, gives them a sense that this tie really is sacred, you are serving the cause of God. And so that's just something about why this notion of community is quite sacred. Everything in the teachings of this religion are really to remind us of that sanctity. And I'd like to tie what we're discussing jihad today to just serving the protection, sanctity and thriving of the Muslim collective. Alhamdulillah. So let's talk about some of the institutional building blocks of the prophetic community. So the Prophet ﷺ went, uh, migrated from Mecca to Medina and established this community. And as you said, it was a pivotal moment in the history of Islam, the, the Hijra. Um, how did the Prophet ﷺ build this community? What were the institutions that he primarily focused on to consolidate this structured unit? Yeah, so there were a number of teachings and practices. So the yeah. very first thing he established, before he established anything else, including his own home actually, was the mosque. Right. And so that's the marker right now of what this new community is. And the mosque is, as I'll be saying, is Islam's greatest institution. Right. And there's different ways we can we can touch on this idea. What makes a mosque a mosque is not walls, pillars, minarets. It's none of that. It's, it's a very just, simple mosque at the time. Of the exactly. Mosque. Yeah. Someone makes a mosque a mosque is actually just an act of designation. Right. That this space belongs to God. It does not belong to anyone amongst us anymore. Therefore, we don't have the right to book any space and say, well, my dad prays there, I pray there. You That's why the mosque is an equalizing space. Scholars had to discuss, are you allowed to lock the doors of the mosque? And later on, they said, you can just to protect. You know, you've got carpets, you've got nowadays microphones. Uh, but the idea is it's a public space. That's why uh, 
the mosque uh, was also a place of resistance. So the early circles of learning were in the mosque because it's, it's a free space for faith. Yeah. We can critique. So people like Abu Hanifa, may Allah be pleased with him, might be critiquing the judgments of the official judges in his circles in the mosque. Mm. So it's a very interesting form of public faith space. But right at the heart, the mosque is defining a new kind of community. Because if you imagine uh, what the meaning of that designation of that space is, is again, early Arabia, you could be Arab, African, you could be slave or free, you could be Arab speaking, not Arab speaking. But when you're in the, these sacred walls, you stand shoulder to shoulder. Otherwise, you're not in this community. Yeah. If you stand in these walls, you pray behind the leader, whoever's the leader of that prayer, whether you like it or not, whether he's poorer than you or not. And so the mosque is forging something that rhetoric doesn't forge. It's a new kind of brotherhood, a new kind of being in the world, which is the being in community. Another supremely important institution uh, I'll come back to the market actually because the Prophet ﷺ, the next thing he established in Medina institutionally was the, the free market. Really? There was a space of land that he had designated for free trade. As long as he didn't engage in exploitative practices like cheating, like usury, like any of the uh, interdicted forms of exploitative practice, you are free to trade. No tax, no one's going to profit off of your profit. We are here free to trade. So the the non-exploitative economy was an important part of his Medina because it's part of this message of justice and you can't separate justice from politics and from the economy. Uh, the other super important institution was Qada. And I you know, might talk about Qada in different angles. So Qada is about, if you like, the, the, the Sharia judge, the judge in Sharia disputes for the Muslim community. And the, uh, because if you don't have a dispute resolution mechanism, you won't have harmony. And, and the goal of the ummah is to resolve discord very, very quickly. Where did the Qadi sit in early Islam? For the early uh, century of Islam, as our fiqh books tell us, the Qadi's office was meant to be in the mosque. Certainly it's what our Hanafi fiqh books tell us. So if you imagine this idea, and our scholars would say, again, even women, because there's this whole dispute of do women come to the mosque, it's better for them to pray at home, and you know, Hanafis are quite uh, stricter on this, uh, scholars of the Hanafi school. But even they say a woman comes to the mosque if she's got a worldly dispute, because that's where the judge is going to be. They mention this in Kitab Adabul Qad. They say if the woman is menstruating, it's quite an you know, interesting detail, because women in menstruation shouldn't be entering the mosque. They say, well, she comes to the door of the mosque, and the judge should come and resolve her dispute. So if you imagine then, You've got a land dispute or someone's donkey uh, it destroyed somebody's vegetation and they, they, you pay me, no, I'm not paying you. Where do they come? They go straight to the mosque. And there'll be somebody there whose job day and night is to resolve disputes. So dispute resolution is supremely important as an ummah organizing institution. Then there was the various, what you can say, tax regimes. We can talk more about zakat, but zakat is governmentally regulated in early Islam. And if you are a Muslim, you have a particular tax rate, it's called zakat. If you're a non-Muslim, you've got a tax rate, it's called jizya. Depending on your economic status, uh, non-Muslims might pay more, might pay less, because it depends on uh, zakat's on a percentage scale, jizya is not. But the point is, you got some tax uh, regime. Uh, where's the money stored? It's stored in a, what they call baytul mal. 
Baytul Mal in early Islam, do you know where it was in the big cities? It was in the mosque. <laughs> mosque courtyards. If you go to the old Umayyad mosque, there's this really interesting structure. And that was the old Baytul Mal. This is like a state treasury? Yeah, it's like the state, state treasury. So, yeah. you know, whether it's collected zakat, collected tax, uh, other forms of publicly collected funds, which the fiqh scholars really regulated because fiqh, half of fiqh is bringing the community together meaning under structure, and the other half of fiqh is regulating that structure. It's, a, it's like a, re, it is very much resist, um, regulating the political. Mm. You could say a resistance uh, sort of language, you know, politics always reined in through the fiqh tradition. Limiting. Limiting, correct. Right, right. So it's got very limited tax regime, mm. but whatever money is raised, there's a baytul mal where it can be stored, and in the big cities of Islam, it's all in the mosque. Yes. Uh, so you get this sense of the centrality of the public space that the mosque was. You get this sense of organizing uh, 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 the collection of funds in a very visible public space where people have access and fair, uh, a sense of what their rights are. So laying out their rights. You have your dispute resolution. You have your market. Uh, and what comes to mind is actually an interesting thing. It's a, it's, it's a non-institution, at least in the time of our Prophet ﷺ, which is the army. Right. There's a non-institution. There is no institution called the army. Uh, this is a new idea that came later, the idea of a standing army. All you had was this notion that all able-bodied males had a duty to defend and they were encouraged to join in campaigns that were to protect this community. The idea that we're all in it, we're all in it together, whether it's a neighborhood watch, you don't have police in the early period, Again, all these things come over time. Or what you do have is this impetus that we are in it together. We defend our communities, we have our dispute resolution centers, we have our, our communal wealth protected, we have our faith spaces. And the last thing, maybe we can tie onto it a bit further, was the protection of every faith community was really important. The Sharia was the code for the Muslims. Other people were expected and were to go to their own codes. Whether you're a Christian or a Jew, whatever your faith community, organize around your faith centers, your scholars, your experts, and just live your communities of faith. That was part of what the code was. The institutions are for everyone. These are the Sharia institutions that I've described. Uh, that's what comes to mind of how he organized Ummah. Yeah. Uh, in Medina sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So you you paint a very evocative picture of this early uh, period of Medina where there is a a process of community building of structuring a community. Now how important is government to this? Because of course for most of Islamic history, you know, notwithstanding the the periods where we may not have had centralized government, for most of Islamic history there was the notion of caliphate. I mean, we now live in a hundred years on, on the 3rd of March, at least nominally a hundred years since the, the demise of the Ottoman Caliphate. How important is the Caliphate when describing a structured Ummah? Yeah, that's a multi-faceted question now. So, first of all, the picture I'm, de I'm describing is that our Prophet, God bless him and give him peace, he really wanted us to come together in collectives. Uh, and so this idea of structure yeah. for the community was always important at every level. Yeah. 
So it's a hierarchical ethic, which might seem strange when we look at our modern, uh, uh, in modernity, we have this uh, sort of equality as a meta, as a meta ethic mm. uh, with how we even look at nature and how we look at, you know, so it might look strange, but it's not that it's more of a hierarchical ethic. Uh, uh, and so, for example, in the family is an idea that children respect parents. Although not where they disobey God. So again, there's no absolute hierarchies which we can come to. There's no absolute hierarchies. Yeah. Then we have the man is the leader of the home. Then we have prayer. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Is done behind a leader. Yeah. There's a lot of... Uh, 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 um, advice on how to choose the best prayer leader but if it's not the best you still pray behind that that leader so in every hajj we don't realize that hajj is behind a leader in the classical fiqh there's an emir of hajj and the ritual ties around that emir uh, actually so lots and lots of instances in the sacred law are about coming together there's a really interesting prayer called the prayer of fear it's described in surah an-nisa and it sounds so crazy if somebody were to hear it described. And the whole purpose of this is when you're in a battle, how do you pray in a way that doesn't divide the army? And scholars have debated on the, really how to interpret the verse. But at the heart of it is you have the imam of the prayer, which might be the Prophet or some general after him. Half the army prays half the prayer and leaves and half the army prays the second half of the prayer and leaves. And the other half comes back and pray the half that they miss. And the other half comes back, pray the half that they miss. And then that's how they pray if they want to pray in one group. But the point is, unity is described all the time. Uh, our Prophet وسلم, uh, encouraged that when people travel together, just choose a leader. Because you don't break out into fights afterwards. I mean, we're, we're all mates right now, but when we have a punctured tire and we were going off to Snowdon and it's middle of the night and you want to book a hotel and I want to call AA and someone says AA's insurance and shouldn't be doing that. Anyway, <laughs> we have our disputes, right? Yes. You can break out into discord, right? And our Prophet ﷺ, everything was about how to bring as soon as possible back to harmony. And at the heart of it was this idea of structure, leadership, wherever uh, you could uh, enforce upon that. So, of, of course, then, then you have your judge, which the community must be appointing to resolve disputes. But then on top of that, then there was this idea of the political. So the political has always been expected, anticipated to actually enable all of the structures I've been describing. So that's why the sacred law and the fiqh tradition is social, political. You can't divorce that from any of its discussions, even its prayer, even the Friday prayer. 
has a social, political dimension to how our scholars talk about it. What's the political dimension of Jummah? Yeah, because the Friday prayer in the classical fiqh is a prayer of cities. So you don't pray them off in the villages. Yes. And cities are where there's a political structuring. You have law and order, you have punishments, you have markets, you have governance. So wherever there is governance, wherever government can express itself, there is a duty for all males to gather once a week in a single prayer. And so that's why in the classical fiqh, every city has one Jumu'ah. And the second Jumu'ah is invalid. And there have a lot of debates how to justify a second Jumu'ah. That's why every old mosque in the ancient Islamic world, only one mosque was called the Jami'ah. Yeah, yeah. The Jami'ah, like the Umayyad Mosque of Damascus. That's the Jami'ah. The Jami'ah of Kufa, Jami'ah of Basra, Jami'ah of Baghdad. They say that Abu Yusuf, Abu Hanifa's student, used to say, cut the bridge because Baghdad had a river. He said, cut the bridge so that you can have a Jumu'ah on the other side of the river. <laughs> Because the idea was, it's a unifying prayer. And if it's a unifying prayer, it's to remind everyone, you're one ummah. But then you have all these Mu'tazili and Ash'aris and Hanbalis and Deobandis and Braille, you know, all sorts will want to lead. Yes. And people will say, but he's not a real Muslim and I don't pray behind him. So how do you overcome that? Our fiqh tradition said, only the imam appointed by the governor is the valid imam. And so the Friday prayer was an interesting time once a week where every city had to come together into a single space. And it's interesting that it's the males. because I've told you, these are the people who have to also defend this city. You all come together under a single leader who is appointed by the governor or by the ruler. And it's an act of harmony under government. And it's an act of government under God. Because if you're not organizing this Jummah prayer, the people have to almost rebel. They have to almost insist on Jumrah. Again, there's no absolute leadership. There's no absolute hierarchy. So it, it's, it's government under God, people under God in this ritual. It's a fabulously fascinating ritual called Jumrah. So our scholars have to debate, well, how do you establish it when there's no government, which we can come to. But so back to this, uh, this loaded word of the caliphate. Yes. So sacred law, we've talked about why it's political and why it's uh, social. Uh, there's no word caliphate or caliph as such, to the best of my knowledge, in the way that you intended at the time of the Prophet He is the leader of Medina. That's how he came to Medina. He had a covenant with all the tribes in Medina, Muslim and non-Muslim, and how they're going to work together in an early constitution called the Constitution of Medina. Very fascinating document. Yeah. After he died, وسلم, the Muslims knew we have to appoint a leader because it's implicit in all of the teaching. And when they appointed that leader, which was Abu Bakr, may Allah be pleased with him, he was known as the Khalifa. And there's a statement where people said to him, you're the Khalifa of God. He said, no, I'm the Khalifa of the Messenger of God. Uh, And so that's where this term came from. And there was this idea of a political unity of the believers. And the term Khalifa continued. Uh, Sayyidina Umar uh, coined the term Amir al-Mu'mineen, commander of the faithful. Because the term Khalifa of the Khalifa of the Messenger of Allah was obviously going to be a, a long word as, it, as the time goes on. Um, and so that's the, that, that's the term, the Muslim polity, the people called Khilafah or Caliphate. Was it historically one political entity unified? That idea lasted maybe for just 100, 120, 130, 140 years. Already, you know, the time of Harun al-Rashid, 800 after Hijrah, 100, just a, whatever, a few decades into Islam. 
already you get this phenomenon of breakaway sort of uh, pieces, uh, various forms of dynastic rule. Uh, but there was this idea, and like at the time of Imam al-Ghazali, this is like the beginning of the 6th Islamic century, you had an Abbasid caliph in Baghdad, not in charge of Baghdad. So Baghdad was under the political control of a Shi'i group from, I think, Azerbaijan called the Buyids. And so you have this figurehead. That's why Western academics discuss, was he more like a pope? Like, what was he doing at that time? Wasn't politically very strong, effective, etc. But he was a figurehead of a political imagination. And I want to talk about why this imagination can be relevant. Uh, he was the figurehead of a political imagination and not just an imagination. People in every time try to organize around this notion of a mass unity of the lands of Islam or what some Westerners call Islamdom, you know, the, the, just the, the bigger sort of grander Islam. Uh, so these various dynastic people might still mention his name in the Juma khutbah and just very loose things. Uh, 1258, uh, uh, Hulegu Khan's people destroyed the Abbasid Caliphate in Baghdad as well. And for a long time, there's no one being called caliph of any political sort in any main sense. After a while, Ottomans grow, they reclaim the title. So what I want to say is this notion of a historical, unified, one thing of Islam under one caliph. Over our history has been more of a political ideal we've been negotiating, developing, working towards. Yes. Which is why jihad as a process, I'm going to tie it to this, uh, as opposed to a thing that always was until very recently. Now, this is something I've been struggling with. So you can go as mildly autobiographical again, me just trying to figure things out. Uh, I met, you know, uh, someone recently, Uvemir uh, Anjum, whom you've interviewed, and he's got this somatics institution talking about caliphate in this very academic space. Mm. I met him for the first time here in London on a trip when he came recently. I said, why do you talk about caliphate? I said, it's a very misleading word because it means different things to different people. You're trying to do academic work. Uh, why not just call it Muslim governance and, you, you know, let people deal with it without such a loaded term. But after talking to him, after thinking about it, after moving on, I find the term is meaningful because it ties into where we started, which is our right, our prerogative and our duty to claim our sacred vocabulary uh, because it will give us dimensions which will liberate us because every vocabulary comes from every, you can't divorce it from its civilization. So when we talk about politics and state and all these words, they're not Muslim words and they're loaded. Caliphate, why I think it's an interesting word, is I think it signifies three quite interesting things for us to think about as an ideal to work towards. Uh, the first of these is the notion of there is no absolute leader ever. You, the highest office imaginable is that you represent the messenger of God, and Khalifa just meaning a representative, someone left behind to represent someone. And that's really powerful because it talks about notions of sovereignty and statehood and what's on top. It's none of that. The messenger of Allah is on top always. And all the highest thing you can ever be in your life is to be the closest follower of him such that you are then entrusted to take care of his ummah. And there's something very powerful about no absolute leader, no absolute anybody. There's something always above, which is God and his messenger. I find that powerful as a political ideal for us to think about. 
The next thing that I find the word quite interesting is the other meaning of Khilafah in the Quran is to represent God on earth. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that he sent Adam to earth to be his representative. That means all of us now. When the scholars talk about what does Khilafah mean then in the idea of God's representative on earth, it's the idea that we've come almost as custodians of the earth. We have a purpose on the earth. Part of it, our scholars say, is uh, they call it Imaratul Ard, bringing forth the treasures of the earth. If you imagine, it's quite mind-boggling. Everything in this room and the microphone, and the electricity and your pad and my phone and the screen, it all came from the earth. There's nothing that we created. It's the treasures of the earth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us the ability, mirroring his, again, a share of his knowledge and wisdom to bring it all out. That's part of Khilafah. We can bring forth amazing things from the earth. Agriculture is an organized human endeavor. doesn't just happen. Um, that's part of it. And part of it is, this is the difference, because you have a Western narrative, or you can say a modern narrative, of exploiting the earth, which is this selfish capital gain. But Khilafah doesn't take you there. It's a, it's a very powerful word, which is about custodianship. And so what Khilafah implies is care for the earth with harmony, uh, which is not going to be a capitalistic, usury-driven destruction of the environment. Caliphate is against that. And there's one last thing in Caliphate that people don't realize, which is a part of custodianship, which is the custodianship of all faith communities. And that's what this last thing sounds very strange. People think that when people talk about Sharia, it's about Sharia law imposed. That's because you're thinking about modern law in modern states. If you lose the modern baggage, the, the, the polity that our Prophet created, established, وسلم, which was lived by the early community, uh, sanctified in our legal tradition, it's a polity where if you're a Muslim, you join our community and you have Sharia courts and mosques and zakat and this harmony of uh, our faith institutions, if you're not a Muslim, you have every protection to follow your faith community. That's why the verse that first permitted jihad, or, or I could say just to be more explicit now, because I said jihad is the whole host of struggles. But the verse that first permitted military action to defend yourself was the verse that said, just in translation, permission has been given to those who've been fought and Allah is capable of defending them. Those who were driven from their homes for any right except that they said God is our Lord. And then it says, If it weren't for the fact that Allah repelled some people by others, mosques and synagogues and churches and monasteries would have been destroyed. And God is remembered in all of these. So even the verse that allowed military fighting straight away said you have to defend all of these people and their communities and their faiths. That's why when the Muslims first went into the Near East, uh, all of these suppressed Christian groups, because Christians had intense internal you know, discord of Nestorians and Duophysites and Monophysites and Jacobians and all of that. When the Muslims came, they were all equal faith communities. Follow your church, follow your law, we're going to leave you completely alone. You just can't engage in riba. Uh, you can't engage in anything exploitative or of wealth and blood. You can buy and sell pork. You can buy and sell wine. 
you have your faith communities to the extent that I'm going off in tangents. We can bring it. I'll stop very soon. To the extent that our fiqh tradition has a very interesting masala or, or legal case. It's in our Hanafi fiqh tradition. So imagine yourself in a Muslim Islamdom, right? There's a great caliph, there's a qadi, and they're governing this pluralistic realm. And a couple comes, Zoroastrian couple, or they call them Magians, which at least in the Islamic memory of them, they permitted uh, incest. And so one member of a Magian couple comes, you know, like say a guy married his mom, which obviously is a disgusting thing in Islamic uh, teachings. Yeah. And he comes to the Muslim judge in the Muslim political realm saying, can you please separate me from my wife? I don't want to stay married to her. Mm. Our fiqh tradition says, at least, you know, this is the teaching of or the position of Abu Hanifa school. The Muslim court has no jurisdiction to interfere in that marriage because mm. it is a legal marriage according to a protected faith community. You have no jurisdiction here. Then they say, what if both of them come? So let's say it's the guy and his mom who are married. And their people aren't divorcing them and they just want to go their own separate ways. They think, okay, let's go to the Muslims. Maybe they'll help us. Then the fuqaha say, because you are both coming, then it's almost like um, arbitration. Like you can both empower the judge, not as Muslim judge, but as arbitrator, you both empowered and then he can separate you. The point I'm trying to get at is caliphate in its idea is a real ideal of custodianship. A sort of ideal that modern politics can't fathom because of the modern notion of the all-invasive state, which Islamic law does not have. So caliphate, why I think it's actually part of a sacred vocabulary, yeah. it's something we should talk about, we should theorize, we should give ourselves direction to think about, is because it is the only fully fleshed out, I shouldn't say only because maybe there's others, but we will... It seems to be to be the only fully fleshed out, fully historical, truly custodian political view of all faiths uh, of nature under no absolute human ruler, purely under God for the betterment of humans, animals and the planet. For me, all of that is in caliphate and it's worth us exploring an alternative politics, the politics that we see. So, so far you've knitted together um, really discrete Islamic institutions and ideas that we may just see as separate ideas and you're bringing them together and, and developing a, 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 a mindset, a, a sense of a community and how they link to that community and a sense of unity or purpose that should be within all of us. And I'm getting, you know, sometimes when you describe uh, these various facets of Islam, uh, I sometimes think, well, that's an Islam that I would, you know, that's an Islam that's quite different to how we practice our Islam today. You know, there is a, there is a, a picture of a, of a faith which is far greater in magnitude than maybe, as you said, the individualized faith that a lot of us practice, especially here in the West. So let's throw in another Islamic concept into the mix. I know it's something that you have a, a deep expertise in, zakah. Right. So zakah is an Islamic obligation and all of us in the month of Ramadan, usually we, uh, we, uh, uh, it, we, we give this zakah to the poor. We usually give it to a, a charity organization or send it back home and we've completed our duty and we move on with our lives. Um, how does zakah fit into this rubric that you've just painted? 
It fits really centrally, really supremely centrally. Why? Again, let's go back to the story of our Prophet mm. He came to Medina, established the mosque. We had our five prayers, uh, uh, which were taught to our Prophet yeah. on the night journey, which is again roughly the period that we're in right now. Yeah. And so you're in Medina, you've got this new institution of the structured five prayers, you've got this new institution of coming together in the mosque. And very early on in Medina, I believe it's about the second Islamic century, you've got this institutionalizing of uh, zakat. Why do I say institutionalizing? Is that the Islamic faith right from the beginning, the revelation is really clear that this is not just a faith challenge to the world. It's not just about one God versus idols, but it is, there's this notion of justice and especially economic justice, which is really central to the earliest revelations of the Quran. This idea that if you don't care for the orphans and the needy and the, uh, uh, the refugees, you might find yourself in hell, like right at the beginning, that you have a duty in your wealth, but it wasn't institutionalized with rules. Uh, in the Meccan Quran, there was the a phrase in Surat Al-Ma'arij, which says, So believers are people, always there's something in their wealth that's delineated, that they give in charity. So there's this impetus, very core impetus of the duty of care uh, in, the, in the rubric, in the essence, in the blueprint of Islam. But then you go into the institutionalized Ummah narrative that we're discussing right now And so there is the institutionalization of zakat Zakat is not all of Muslim giving So this notion of giving for forgiveness To save yourself from hell To win the pleasure of God Giving to the stranger, giving to the neighbor uh, Care for the animals This giving continues throughout the Medinan Quran Which is for all beings, all living beings All kinds of giving Zakat is a subset of Muslim giving right. A very particular amount Which is not very much at all mm. Only 2.5% In most forms of wealth um, Meaning there's different types of wealth At different rates But the wealth that most of us deal with Is 2.5% yeah. And it's a very specific kind of wealth Which naturally grows if you care for it It's not fixed assets It's really restricted So you shouldn't find it a burden you give it every year and the narrative is of zakat is you're purifying your wealth. Like you have to do it. It's not your wealth. It's God's wealth. Yeah. But that's where it gets interesting now. You have to give it to Muslims uh, according to the vast majority of, of Islamic scholarship. Uh, why? Because of the narrative we've been painting. Mm. It is the, along with prayer, it is the greatest foundation laying Ummah-forming institution. And that's why there's another fascinating detail in zakat. We don't talk about enough in our wider discourse. Obviously, we do talk about it in National Zakat Foundation, yeah. which is this localization of zakat. So classical fiqh, across the four schools of law, has an understanding that zakat in its ideal is localized. Not localized to nation-state, which is a, didn't exist, but localized to city, to village, to region where people are, the only debate in classical fiqh was whether this localization is you could call fard or you could call sunnah. Are you sinful if you don't localize? Is it valid if you don't localize? Or That, that was a debate. Is it fard or sunnah? Or when can you not localize? 
Can you not localize for family? Can you localize? So there's just a, a, a debate, we can say. If you leave the debate for now, the notion that the institution at its core is a localized one, yeah. you get an idea of what zakat is doing then. It's telling Muslims, wherever you live, as the most fundamental pillar of your faith, some amongst you have to specialize in knowing who are your fellow believers? What are their needs? Is anyone struggling? Let's care for them. Otherwise, you haven't established a basic pillar. That's what pillars are, right? There's the, the, the most basic things if you really want to belong to this community. He said, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, may Allah be pleased with him. He said, you know, zakat was stressed so much in early Islam. He said that we were told to pray and give zakat. Whoever does, doesn't give zakat has no prayer. Again, not to say that valid or invalid, but it's just this idea that the two sides to a coin, like why are you giving zakat? And so zakat is institution. We have this idea right now of I've done it or I haven't done it. It's all about the, the, the doing of it. Just like with prayer, it's done or not done, but yes. prayer has a purpose. Prayer is rectifying you. Prayer has a meaning. Prayer is a journey for you as an individual and as a community. We make mosques, we make jumar, we etc. So similarly, zakat is not just about I got it done. Uh, it's not a tick box. Yeah. It's a journey. That's where, again, a narrative of jihad is interesting always because it tells you what's the next step? How can I move the needle on this institution for the betterment uh, of the ummah, for the betterment of the deen? So I'd say we in our community need to move this needle because if we get this one right, and I'm not saying don't send abroad. We can come to it. It's not, I'm not saying a fatwa. I'm just saying just think about the meaning of the institution. Yeah. If we get this one right, and if we can create a foundation of just dignity and honor and belonging, that wherever there's a Muslim in London, Bradford, uh, Nicaragua, wherever you are, wherever there's a Muslim, there's a real brotherhood. Not just the fact that we say, Asalaamu Alaikum, and we have nothing else in common. That you have a right in their world. That's the world zakat narrative is the giver is not doing a favor. He must pay. And the receiver is not being done a favor to. He has the right to receive. So it's, it just reframes brotherhood in the most clearest of ways. And it's a foundation. If we get the foundation right, wonderful things can be built on top of that. Of activism and community service and really bringing to life the justice, the mercy, the message. Because we found each other. And that's why I said... You can't separate the message of our Prophet from the ummah impetus of his message. Because I'm weak and you're weak. When we're together, we, we, can, we can share a message. That's the idea. So if zakat, so the prayers, are, the mosques are doing it. We, we criticize our previous generation. I don't think it's for us to criticize as much as it's for us to build on what they've done. We're only here, I think, because they made mosques, however crazy this sounds. Because a mosque allowed people to come together, have lessons, have activity, form community. And then they thought, why do we have this Muslim community? Uh, we made colleges and we thought, oh, let's talk about it. We made podcasts. So if you followed a chain, I think it would go back to the mosque, the mosque of Britain, personally. Yeah. And so they've done something. And I'm saying zakat is the next one in the life of our Prophet, if you make zakat really work in our communities, it will really uh, give us a new imagination of a charity-based economy, right. of a giving-based empowerment, and of belonging to a faith community.
which is good for us. And as we can discuss, I think it's good for wider British community yeah. to experience this so or, to, or to observe this. So let me um, uh, discover how you do it in National Zakat Foundation. So I was uh, interested to hear about the Barkin Masjid experiment. Ex- explain that to me, please. What, 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 what did you try to do through, uh, through that exercise? Sure. So National Zakat, I've been at National Zakat Foundation for about two and a half years. National Zakat Foundation is the only organization for the nationwide in the UK collection and distribution of zakat. People can access these funds. Uh, they can apply online. And if, if they're successful with their application, which we check them for zakat eligibility, they can receive cash grants through bank transfers to the post office. So we, we have this network, which is working for givers and recipients nationally online. Through, part, through banks, post offices, etc. But the narrative I've drawn to you right now, it needs another step. Because it's an internet portal that someone goes to. to Correct. Zakat, right. But where's community in all of right. that? It's real because we ask everybody, do you feel closer to community? And by and large, people say yes. Because the truth is, yeah. you're alone. You didn't know anyone was there for you. You applied online. You said, well, I'm a Muslim. I need help. Yeah. You suddenly have your rent arrears written off. You've secured shelter for a number of months. You feel so lucky to be a Muslim. You feel so happy to have a community. It's real, but it's not real, real, real like it is when you've met people. Because then you have a community that can be with you after the zakat exchange. And so just the next journey, if you like, what we're trying to accelerate the National Zakat Foundation and work is to, is to really work with our community infrastructure. And so there's two things we're trying to develop is how can people receive zakat in a way that connects them to the community? That's one part of it. And the other part of it is how can you mobilize a Muslim public to feel responsible for their neighbors? Because they are responsible. This is the point. How do you empower people with education? Maybe they can raise funds. Maybe they can educate. Maybe they can be part of serving in a zakat system in their communities. So it's moving in this direction of connecting through zakat and mobilizing people that this uh, uh, pilot scheme, which has worked in, we've done it in more places than, than the barking one okay. that you're referring to. Yeah. And we're growing it now to a number of London mosques. Okay. And our goal is to take it nationwide over the next uh, couple of years. The idea is what we did was uh, in a mosque, a mosque has a number of um, uh, community services already. They got a food bank. They got secondhand sort of clothing bank. They've got free counseling. They got martial arts clubs. They got Quranic studies. Had all these things. And all we did was a simple experiment or a simple pilot, which was cash giving. There's a lot being said about cash giving and international development. People are studying the uh, notion of cash giving even in in Western and developed countries. Yeah. Because it empowers people and dignifies people to choose. Mm-hmm. And as far as we've been able to see, National Zakat Foundation today in the United Kingdom yeah. is the largest mover of cash grants across Muslim and non-Muslim charities. The best is what we've been able to see. So our, exper- our plan in the pilot was as follows. Really small cash grants. And I asked them to be small initially. Yeah. So they want people beating up the imam that, you know, where's my 3,000 pounds that you've denied me? If it's a small amount, you know, you can say you weren't eligible. I'm sorry, I can't give you zakat. Small cash grants, depending on family size, they went from approximately 150 to 250 pounds. It's not like huge. Mm-hmm. 
And we developed a sort of streamlined zakat assessment because you're seeing the person. You can see, are they a refugee? Are they an asylum seeker? You can look at their ID stuff. You can, you can re record their data. So it's, 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 a, it's a simple assessment. Yeah. We, uh, so the, 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 the partner assesses, we train them. The partner can give cash there and then we'll reimburse the partner. But what was interesting of what happened was that people were coming for little bits of cash that weren't coming for any of the other services within the mosque. But when they came, they joined the mosque network. I mean, they started going to the food bank. They started doing the clothing. They started attending the madrasa. Yeah. Or the mosque was able to add other services. They realized uh, the mother was struggling. She's got teenage kids. She's struggling to control. They said, okay, we'll give them free admission to the martial arts club. Mm -hmm. They were able to connect all of their other services. Uh, and then the zakat assessment, we only needed a shorter one. They made it longer because actually got to know their community. And the people who came for the zakat assessment, they felt they had someone to talk to about their problems, which they didn't have. Yes. And then after that, the mosque went to other mosques and madrasas and said, if you've got people in need, send them to us. We have this NZF pilot. We have these cash grants. And so then they started communicating and they found other needs they could share with each other. So they said, oh, they shared their counselors and they shared other things. So a small amount of cash in our grassroots infrastructure led to so much connectivity. And we had people being regular in the mosque who weren't praying before. We had um, uh, people started volunteering. They came for zakat. They started volunteering in the charitable sort of projects of the mosque. Yeah. He even started a project, so the partner there, of a version of the same assessment, but not with zakat and with a limited stream just for non-Muslims. They could come and they could, they already they could use the food bank. They can get some cash grants. Yeah. He just mirrored it with, 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 with other funds. And in, it sounds uh, amazing. He told me the story and started crying. He said, you know, within a month, yeah, someone actually converted to Islam. There, there was no overt preaching. It was this, they came to the mosque and got cash. They became a regular in the food bank. They observed the community and they said, I want to belong because belonging is a very basic uh, human need. It breaks down all these barriers that people have that, you know, dogma and discussion doesn't have. So all I can say is we found small empowerment at the grassroots is transformative. Uh, and so the goal is just how to take this across communities in the country. We're looking for currently mosque and community partners who have the wider infrastructure, yeah. a volunteer base. They offer other services. Because it's the beginning of, again, mobilizing people because it's not about a charity. It's about the zakat system that we all have a right to. That, that's what this is about. So this is uh, amazing stuff, really. And um, I, you know, I can see the, the, the collective opportunities in, in this organized effort. And, and as you've said, you know, you're linking uh, what we see to be a, a discrete Islamic obligation into a broader context and, and it gives local communities a sense of mission and I, I think that's that's wonderful. Now how do you uh, deal with and I can imagine uh, some would say well we have an ummah obligation in the broader sense and when we look across the world regardless of our situation here and there are very many poor people in this country of course uh, from the Muslim community but we've got a worse situation out mm -hmm. there. Just think about the Rohingyas in mm -hmm. Cox's Bazaar or, you know, the, the people of Gaza, of course. Mm -hmm. At the moment, very little was getting in. But at some point, they're going to need a lot of money, a lot of development aid, a lot of 
a lot of effort from, from everyone around the world. How do we weigh up being responsible to our neighbors and building a sense of community, which is a very design and structured process, with this wider obligation we have towards our ummah? And so the best thing I can say for this question is we should not think about this as a zero-sum game. Either or. It's not either or. We have to realize that there's this thing called barakah, which is an interesting notion, part of our sacred vocabulary. Jesus salam, said, I am Mubarak, I am blessed wherever I am. Uh, and barakah is, our scholars say, the secret of increase. And zakat, all of it, is the mystery of barakah. Because my 2.5%, I'm telling you, it's not that much money. <laughs> Neither, you know, I don't know how you know, yours is or theirs is or hers. But the point is, yeah. when we all do it, some people say the estimate of world zakat is anything up to a trillion dollars right now within the world. Wow. That's why so many UN aid agencies are trying to now have zakat scholars and zakat panels. Yeah. Because it is a mighty movement of wealth. And most Muslims, I don't think, are even paying it. They don't even understand it. Because it seems so small. And they haven't seen a narrative to see what it's part of. That they sometimes don't feel like it's that important to take part in. This is the truth, right? Yeah. So it is a mighty institution. This is the first thing. And if you realize, A, it's mighty. And B, it's blessed. And that you don't have to restrict it through zero some campaigning and canvassing, then you go back to a beautiful metaphor of our Prophet who said the believers are like a body. And I find a lot of depth in this metaphor. Uh, One is that, and that's why, again, tying what we've discussed as jihad and ummah, you know, we've tied it, we have to maybe at the end find a nice summary because there's so many pieces here we've touched upon. But if you think about yourself as responsible and caring for a collective it does actually give you, it fuels your directedness and purposefulness. It's mm. useful to you. It drives you. Yes. And you should think about it. And then what does the hadith say? The whole body feels fever. Mm. This wider drive concerns you. And you want to do something about it. You don't just forget it. But then if you look at the narrative of the body or the metaphor of the body, uh, all of the body is important but not all of the body is mobile within all of the body, meaning you got blood cells, white blood cells, you also got heart, you also got liver, mm. various parts. But the point of the body, you know, if you delve even deeper into the metaphor, is you have to understand what your role is and do it as best as you can while being driven for a concern for the whole. If a little finger follows a little finger politics and saying, I don't need the body, the finger's going to die. A figure can't survive without the body. And all you've done is denied the body a finger. So what I'm trying to say is this idea of breaking up in little little fiefdoms and kingdoms yes. is always going to be defeatist. Mm. So the point is there has to be global concern. But the narrative throughout all of today is I've, ca- I've called it sacred vocabulary. You could call it a sacred framing. You could call it going back to our heritage to make a plan for action. Mm. That's why we called it jihad, not activism. We called it ummah and not something else. We called it zakat, not charity, because it will give us purposefulness. And so similarly here, the Sharia is telling us how to make this balance. You can't be a Muslim in London and ignore the right of your neighbors in London. You can't because the fiqh is telling you that you can't. Separate from zero sum, separate from all and might, because scholars have debated. So what I would say as as leadership, 
it's not zero sum, it's not either or, it's not wrangling and fighting. It's that we need to have people who are good at getting aid to reach people in places like uh, Gaza and uh, the other parts of, of the Muslim world. But we cannot forget our collective duty to build our communities where we are because that's what the sacred law told us. Don't be strategic. That's the problem with uh, strategy because you don't know what frame you're coming from, yeah. meaning just pure strategy. Instead, like we've said today, there's no absolute leadership. There's just following the messenger. He will show you the way. That's exactly why he came to you. Yeah. And so if you just break the zero sum, break the... And the other thing I, I don't like is greater need, less need, as if you're doing return on investment. That's some secular framing. Mm. Again, the, the, the secular has, has really imbued all of our conversations. Mm. It's not return on investment. Reward with God is not a return on investment that this money houses three people there and one person there, so I get triple. It, it isn't like that. It's your intention and it's your duty that will, def that will define uh, levels of reward. And the truth of the matter is, just today, just today, Gordon Brown released an op-ed in The Guardian yeah. talking about the crisis of poverty within the UK, the crisis of children being ignored in bed. He literally said bedrooms without beds, tables without food. And he says, just like the outrage people feel today with the government and with all our justice system, how did you fail all those innocent postmaster, he literally said that for 20 years, yeah. he said the next generation will come and say how dare the government and institutions of today ignore the crisis of poverty in Britain as if it doesn't exist, as if he just said they walk along the other side of the pavement. And we all know, we all know, all of us watching and listening, the pain we would feel if we lost our job today, the pain we'd feel if we weren't able to pay next month's mortgage payment, we know the depression, the anxiety, the fights we'd have with our spouses, the anger we'd take out in our children, the panic, the heartache. We would forget all of our, you know, wider agendas. Then why do you think it's acceptable for your neighbor to have that? That selfishness is not right. So it's not about more or less. Yes. It's not about zero sum. It's the fact that the neighbor in faith has a special right because he's the neighbor in faith. That's what the rules of zakat are saying with what I've described as the localization. Yeah. It, you can't do return on investment and you can't ignore. What we have to do is put our hands together and specialize at the grassroots level, at the national level, and at the international level. And as long as we believe in the barakah of the institutions of Islam, they will be enough. And God will show us the way. That's my absolute conviction. Um, so I do want you to knit all of this together. But um, uh, at the very beginning, you talked about this mission of Islam. And it's it's been implicit in everything you've said so far. And I'm struck by the very fact that we in the West are in a very privileged position. We have certain advantages that I suspect the majority of the Muslim Ummah just do not have access to. How do we link that mission of Islam that you, you know, very clearly stressed at the very beginning, how do we link that with this privilege we have in the West? Like, you know, how do we imbue this mission within ourselves? So within this quest, sacred heritage, sacred teaching, sacred vocabulary, hmm. there's another vocabulary item that I've been exploring because I think it is relevant and it might seem metaphorical to some people. And it's the vocabulary item which comes in the hadiths 
which is ribat. Ribat, and the doer of it is called a murabit, is a reference that was given to manning the outposts of this thing we've called loosely Islam, the lands of Islam. The idea was, whoever lives at the outposts, and the idea, and there's no such thing, remember this always, there's no such thing as fixed borders until about 1929. Like 1929, there was a treaty signed in Paris with a number of nations to agree that let's stop, because I was after First World War, let's stop war, let's have fixed borders. Second World War still happened, and in the Nuremberg trials, they then re-quoted the 1929 treaty to then make uh, conquest illegal when they did those trials. So the idea was, you have to realize, the notion of fixed borders is not even 100 years old. We, we forget that. All political theory, all ethical theories, all moral theories have always been on the idea that civilization needs war, always. And war is how you defend civilization. And there's no boundaries. You are always in threat. Constant, constant, constant civilizational threat. So whoever lives on the borders is living in a dangerous place. And so those people were called people of ribat. Because the idea was when you're on the border, and there's no notion there's fixed borders, you're the first line of attack and defense. You will be the first people to face a threat, and you are the first people who can send a warning. So some people would live, and they would be called murabits. They would live in watchtowers, on mountains, just out of the cities. They'd spend their whole day in worship and Quran and ibadah, but their official job was to see if an army is coming. That's it. And they spend their life like that. What kind of life is that? That life, all of it is jihad fi sabidillah. That person uh, uh, dies uh, a martyr for the sake of God. If you come back to martyrdom, maybe you can remind me. There's some interesting nuance there if you wish. Yeah. Uh, dies as a martyr for the sake of God. And they didn't do any fighting. Uh, the people of Gaza are people of Ribat. The, the very fact that they're living is that they are protecting a claim of justice just by being. And they might, in their whole lifespan, just go to school and university and have kids, but their whole life is manning a very dangerous outpost for the sake of reminding the world of a justice that the world has forgotten or an injustice that the world has forgotten to address. That's what it means to live in Ribat. It's scary. It's on the outpost. You're a watch for what comes. And your whole life is of great consequence. Good. Now, that's one part of the vocabulary. Mm. Another part of the vocabulary, before we come to uh, UK, another part of the classical fiqh. Classical fiqh had a very odd theological map of the world. It wasn't a political or geographical map. It was meaning political, meaning Buyid versus Abbasid versus Ghaznavid. It wasn't like that. Mm. It had a higher plane. Mm. And in the higher plane, it was just Darul Islam and Darul Kufr. It was really simple. Mm -hmm. The two, two map of the world. The land where Muslims are in control, lands where they're not. And we've, we've discussed uh, some of the nuances there. Mm -hmm. So, they had a debate in classical fiqh. Is a Muslim allowed to travel from Darul Islam to Darul Harb? Normally, they would travel for trade or other advantages. And there's a spectrum of opinion. So, Maliki, scholars of the Maliki school, were the strictest. They didn't even approve sometimes of traveling for trade. Definitely didn't improve your living there. Because the idea was of everything we've discussed today, faith is tied to community and protection. If you're out, you're going to lose it. And faith is the most precious thing a person has. But there was another part of that spectrum. Uh, at the other part, probably a very, you know, the other part, there's some Shafi'i scholars were very interesting. 
Al-Imam Al-Mawardi, who's a very famous treatise on, on Islamic politics, he said, if Muslims go to a non-Muslim country and they are safe and they're able to practice their religion, then they should keep staying there. And they should imagine and understand what they've done is they've extended Darul Islam, like the political Darul Islam, they've actually extended it into that land by practicing the faith there. And he says they should stay there because others might enter the faith. And what he means by that is not just about more signups. The point is the civilizations of the world will benefit from what we have because we believe we are custodians of a message the world needs. So those people will benefit from you. How on earth are you going to leave them now that you're there and you're safe and you're practicing? A mini Darul Islam is very interesting. Al-Imam Ar-Ramli, Muhammad Ar-Ramli, he is the, I think it's Muhammad Ar-Ramli was the, the person I'm going to quote. He is one of the two greatest authorities of late Shafi'i school. He was from Egypt. And he said, if you are a Muslim community in a non-Muslim country and you're safe in practicing your religion, you're not allowed to go back. <laughs> Can you imagine? It's even stronger. That's it now. Yeah. You've extended the outpost. How are you going to abandon? It's almost, it's like abandoning conquest, right? You, how are you going to abandon it? How dare you abandon it? Just strengthen yourself, be strong, be good, good will come. That's how, again, interesting. These are Shafi'i scholars because obviously it's Muslims with this mentality are the people who took Islam to Malaysia and Indonesia. Not through armies, just through safe communities of faith. And they were Shafi'is actually, so you can see a connection there. The Hanafi school has an interesting doctrine where they say that if Muslims are safe in a minority setting, what they should do is, again, the spirit of all of today's conversation, seek to organize themselves. So we went to, he said, Jumu'ah has to be from the politics. That, that, that's okay, because in, in the Muslim political theory, the imam of the Muslims got power from the people, like the people appointed and empowered. So if there's no imam, you still have people. So they said, okay, just you appoint Jumu'ah, you appoint councils. They said, after you've managed that, they said, then you appoint a qadi. I've talked about the Muslim judge is really important because you can't have Muslim marriage really without a Muslim judge. That's the way that the rules work. So a, a judge is meant to come from a political appointment. They said, don't worry about it. You still have the people. You organize and appoint the qadi. Then they said, if you get that far, they said, ask the ruler, who they imagine would be some king of some sort, ask him to give you a Muslim governor. So the point was always organize. And always try to bring about the structures of the sacred law as much as possible. It's a map. You can see what we, how we started off with. There's a direction. There's a purpose. There's a mission. And you are good for the people. And I'll come to, if, you, if I forget, I'll come to what good yeah. for the people means. So uh, coming back to Tide Ribat, Darul Islam and where we are, I believe we should combine the narratives that I just presented here. And I think it's meaningful that we should imagine ourselves as by the grace of God, by the will of God, because Allah acts in very, uh, people say God acts in mysterious ways. It's a common saying. Colonialization, the raping of the East, whatever you call it, it's led to a safe Muslim community living in this land. They have to now be purposeful. We shouldn't see ourselves as coming to milk the cow or whatever other metaphor there is for economic migration. We are bigger than that. We have a message. We have a mission. We believe in justice. We believe in what is better for the world. We are custodians. 
and we can do better. And the sacred law gives us the mapping. And so I think we should intend that. I think we should intend that we are an outpost for the global ummah. Uh, and I, I believe we should intend that if we succeed here to be strong, to be representative, to be a voice of justice, to be a voice of fairness, again, justice and mercy, which are the two things that the sacred law balances in a very important way. I believe we will be good, not just for ourselves, selfishly, we'll be good for the world. Because in the metaphor of the outpost, if we're living on the northern post, we are the first line of defense from a threat. Similarly, a Muslim minority, that can be safe and that can be strong. In a country like ours, Great Britain has a great history of consequence in the world. A history that it's still floating into the, into the modern world. Not a great economy at the moment, but a history that gives it still a place. Yes. If we can influence this country in a way that's positive and fair and just, uh, we will benefit how many people on this planet. And so therefore, I think our livelihoods can be intended as ribat, manning the outpost. All you need is the intention of purposefulness, which is what we started with today. And what that means is your life and your death and your eating and your food. I don't want to make the comparison because I don't think that's fair. But in the metaphor of the people of Gaza, it's mimicking that metaphor. A people who are surrounded, but they have dignity and they live their faith and they, they maintain their claim to justice and they live and they die like that. Their whole life is jihad fi sabilillah, the life of any community in any setting where they're trying to further their safety, their security and the thriving of the ummah where they are, there's no reason why you can't intend a lesser reward. Uh, and I think that's important and it's part of this purposefulness. And the last thing I'll say, just because before I forget, yeah. I keep saying the wider Britain will appreciate it. I'm not just saying that to placate. Because when I talk about ummah and jihad, I know it sounds scary and very exclusivist. We just care about ourselves. It's not like that. It's because our faith um, demands of us to experience it in community. That's why we talk about ummah. But the truth of the matter is the faith and the sharia is for everyone. I will give you one example of zakat because mm. I'm, I'm in it and I can tell you what I'm seeing. Yes. Uh, we're about to launch a report in parliament uh, in the next month to show the economic impact of our housing fund. We, part of our zakat expenditure is to save uh, Muslims from going homeless. We cover their rent arrears and we keep them in housing. We've done a study that shows that our keeping Muslims in, in housing, uh, one pound we spend on that is saving the government to rehouse somebody homeless, it's saving them 73 pounds. So a million pounds we've spent in housing over the last few years has saved the wider government and the wider expenditure and the support structure, and the charities, and the institutions, and the GPs, and all the mental health calls that would have happened, 73 million pounds. Uh, we spoke to an MP recently talking about the, the, just, just the cash transfers. Uh, uh, we've transferred in the last year, you know, different forms of support, uh, about 7 million pounds. And so, so he said, we were talking about what we spend in London. He said, you guys are a scaffolding upholding the capital. So the truth of the matter is, when an ummah organizes and the ummah lives the values of its sacred law, it does bring mercy to people around because we have an alternative to the exploitative economy of usury and we have a community-based vision 
which is an alternative to the pervasive nation state, which atomizes people and even uh, into very small family units, you know, the, the philosophy of the nation state. And the state is crumbling. I'm considering for my family to travel overseas for a medical procedure because I can't afford to keep waiting. I've had two very near calls on the life of a loved one because NHS waiting lists were too long and I'm just one person. Uh, and Gordon Brown's article of today, it is failing for many reasons. Our message as a Muslim community is by all means, we do hold the government to task, we call for better governance, but it doesn't replace our responsibility to our neighborhoods. Zakat is just a brick. Don't think of Zakat as the whole mission. Mm. It just gets people mobilized at a community level. And so our message is let's develop community infrastructure. And we can work across all the faith divides. Again, National Zakat Foundation, we worked with a Christian housing shelter you know, a, number, a couple of years ago. We cover the cost of Muslim residents in their shelter so then their funds would go further to help more people who are homeless. So th that's just one example of a few acts of zakat. So I want to really stress, it's not about exclusivist view, and it's not about we really are a, 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 a cell for a foreign government. It's not like that. Mm -hmm. We feel responsible. It's a narrative of custodianship. That's why Mawardi and Ramli, they said, you can't leave now. They need you. And there is a new Britain being formed out of the failing of these structures. We don't realize that. Yeah. These institutions, if we just serve them, we'll be a stronger community. And I think Britain will benefit from that. And it should benefit from an enlightened faith community with a sacred law whose narrative is not from the modern exploitative capitalistic narrative. Dr. Sohani, this has been a really fascinating conversation. For your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you very, very much for having me. Please remember to subscribe to our social media and YouTube channels and head over to our website, thinkinmuslim.com, to sign up to my weekly newsletter. Jazakallah khair. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.